What was? I accepted the associate. Yay! That's so exciting. Okay, y'all, we got to get moving because we have two whole chapters of the Song of Solomon to plow through. And there's some great stuff. There's some great stuff that I'm really excited about. So, yeah, we have Song of Solomon 6 through 8 to get to. And, uh, man, this, this, that's true, I guess. It is three chapters. Ouch. Man, what did I do? Oh, nah, we, you know. Do you need to understand, when we first, when I first started doing Bible study, the plan was that I would keep up with your reading plan, which is two chapters every week. That was the plan, that I would be teaching on the two chapters that you had read for the week out of the epistles of Paul. That was the original plan. And that plan went out the window really fast. The first week? No, it was a couple weeks. It was, you know, there was a couple weeks where we just kept jogging and then... We got to like Romans 6, and I'm like, I cannot do more than one of these chapters. I mean, it's Romans 6. There's so much stuff in Romans 6. So we just taught like Romans 6, and then we took two weeks to teach Romans 8 because it's Romans 8. And then from that on, we just went as slow as we've been going. So, um, Although, you know, well, I've tried to – I think we've made really good – Pace through the Song of Solomon. You know, this is what there our fifth session, and we're getting all the way through the end of the eighth chapter. So, okay, yes, we we have to plow through. So let's pray. Abba, I thank you so much for your word, for your presence, for your passion, your your fiery heart for us. Lord, I love you. Come, Holy Spirit. This is our last class time together, and Lord, I just pray that you would you would pack every moment of this time with revelation, with wisdom, with knowledge. Uh, spirit of wisdom and revelation, I, I invite you to come, to open up the Word of God, to reveal its depths to us, to teach us things that are impossible to understand. Impart them to us, I pray in Jesus' name. You know, the Bible calls us to know what is beyond knowledge. And I love that. God is constantly calling us to do the impossible. All the time. And anybody that quotes that verse that says and, and says, God won't give you more than you can handle, that's bullcrap. It's bullcrap. God constantly gives you more than you can handle. Constantly. He's just there to give you the power to actually handle it. He's there to step... To, to teach you again, guess what? This isn't you, it's about me. That's, and, and so he's constantly calling us to do the impossible. My job is impossible. It's impossible. I, I, my job is to give you knowledge of the unknowable God. That's my job. 
and he is beyond knowledge. He is there. He is so massive, so complex, so overwhelming. Every, every, the, the, every truth about God is infinite. Think about that for just a minute. We can't comprehend one infinite reality, and God is calling us into an, uh, to understanding Him, and everything about Him is infinite. There is nothing about God that's smaller than some other part of God. All of God is unified infinity. That means everything He thinks, everything He feels, everything He loves, it's all infinite. There's no part of him that's like at war with another part of him. That's not how it works. It's just not. God's mercy and his justice, they live right next to each other. The Bible says mercy triumphs over justice. That's in us. That's not in him. In him, mercy and justice are beautifully aligned and they kiss beautifully. They mix. They, they are one reality in his heart. But because of sin and our brokenness in us, he gives more mercy to us than, than justice. And it's this beautiful thing, which I, which I adore. I love. But we've got to understand that there's nothing inside of God that's not like God. part of God is, 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 well, I hate that part of me. No, that, that's, not, that's, not, that's not how he is. He's infinite. And so everything I teach you about God is infinitely true, which means it will take an infinite amount of time for our puny little brains to even come to a to, to, to the most shallow understanding of the realities that so when I teach what I am desperately hoping for, the only way that any of this is going to actually do anything is if the Holy Spirit uses my really weak words, my 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 pitiful words, and 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 moves on your heart and gives you an impossible thing which is an understanding of the mystery I'm trying to explain. And the only reason I have any any concept of that mystery myself is because it was given to me the same way. Does this make sense to everybody? I love wading into the mystery of God. That's why that's one of the reasons why I love communion. Because communion is a total mystery. We do not get it. And that's on purpose. God was like, I want you to eat bread and grape juice, and it's really my body and my blood, and, it, yeah, and that's the way it is. And we're like, what? And so there, there's been these all these human-like understandings, like, well, it becomes actual flesh and blood once it enters into our bodies, right? That's called uh, transubstantiation, which that's what the Catholics actually believe. They actually believe that there's a miracle done. That's why only priests are allowed to give the communion because they're the only ones that are, that are able to perform the miracle of the sacrament and transform the elements into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, the Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible doesn't have any problem with this weirdness, this, this it's bread and juice or wine or whatever. And it's the body and blood of Christ. The Bible does not have any problem with saying those two things at the same time. The Bible almost never has a problem with just saying two things that are completely opposite to one another and saying, yeah, they're both true. And we're like, it's not fair. And God's going, ha, 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 ha. I'm a seventh dimensional being. You can't understand me. Ha, 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 ha. Right? Okay, so. Maybe Jesus just hates it like those nasty prayers. 
<laughs> Brian just yeah. called Jesus a nasty guy. I mean, <laughs> I think that's a terribly racist statement. <laughs> well, besides the fact that Jesus wasn't white, um, but Brian left his filter at home yesterday. That's okay. That's all right. <laughs> right. Exactly. We're coming to the end. The filters should have come off a long time ago, guys. My filter, my filter went bad, so I had to throw it out. I forced to buy a new one for the summer. So. That's right. <laughs> anyway, I'm not sure why I went off on that tangent just now, but but anyway, the Holy Spirit nudges me off the beaten path every once in a while, and I just like to run to the end of that and go, that was cool, and then run back. <laughs> so, all right, we're starting in Song of Solomon, chapter 6. We ended with verse 5 last time. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have confused me. He says, he says, oh, I'm overwhelmed by your eyes, because she has stood in the place of, of twofold testing. She has stood in the place where he has gone from her and the people that are supposed to lead her back to him are, have, have abused her. And she stands in that place and she makes this confession. Tell him I'm lovesick. And then the, the, the daughters of Jerusalem are like, what is wrong with you? Don't you see the way the situation that you're in? And is, it's his fault. And, and why on earth would you tell us you're lovesick when he does this to you? And she says, you don't understand. And she begins to describe his glory and his beauty in ways that, that she's never spoken of him before in the book. And, and, and she's just, she is astounded by his beauty, by his glory, by his, and she is convinced at the deepest level of who she is that he is passionate for her. And it's out of that place that the bridegroom says, ah, turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me because he's so moved by her adoration of him that it overwhelms him. The God of all eternity, the God of the universe is, is, so overwhelmed by her adoration of him that he is, he's, he's blown away. He's, he's like, I can't take it. I can't take it. The infinite God receiving adoration and worship from a suffering saint who does not understand why she's in the place that she is in. He says, oh, you're so beautiful. Your love for me overwhelms me. I want God to feel that way about me. And when you are in, hear me. When you are in the place of testing, the place you do not understand, the place where you cannot feel God at all, and you still look at him and say, I'm lovesick, and you're still able to worship from that place, that is the place of the greatest treasure from your heart unto the Lord. The time when you feel it the least, but you choose it anyway, that's when God says, oh, you overwhelmed me. It's Job saying, though he slay me, I will trust him. You know, it's Paul, and it was Paul and Silas in the prison worshiping at midnight after they've had the crap beat out of them and their legs are in stocks. And God says, oh, you know, God was so overwhelmed that the ground shook and they got set free and the whole, the Philippian jailer got saved and 
It's in those moments, those dark <laughs> places where our humanity is incapable of understanding what he is thinking, incapable of understanding what he is, what, what he is up to, and why we feel the way we do. She is not okay in this moment. You need to understand, she is hurt. She is confused. She, she has been abused. And in that place, she says with her, heart, with her whole heart, tell him I'm lovesick. It's from that place that she makes the descriptions of him that she's never been able to make before. She can't feel his presence because he's not, he's not there. She can't understand why he's not there. And she can't understand why the people that she should have trusted to lead her back to him have beaten her and, and left her exposed and embarrassed. That's where she's lived. And it's in that place that she says, I'm lovesick, and begins to pour out a testimony of his glory, his beauty, and his grace before the daughters of Jerusalem, which is the rest of the church. This is who he is to me. That is why he responds the way he does. He is overwhelmed by her heart in that moment because he understands her frailty and her pain in that moment. And yet, she doesn't point at him and accuse. She doesn't yell at him and tell him that, that he's a jerk and that she doesn't want to see him again. She looks and says, I'm lovesick. And then she pours out this litany of praise before the rest of the church of how glorious he is. And then his response is, uh, I, I can't, I can't handle this. And he comes rushing back to her in that moment. You see, God allows us to go to places of difficulty and, and stress and, and brokenness. He allows us to go there because it's in those moments that the work that he's been doing up until that time become real to us. It's in those moments, it's when you get squeezed that you find out what's on the inside of you. That's what happens. And all of a sudden, praise is pouring out of her. She, she may even be surprised by her own reaction in this moment. I still love him. I still love him. And he comes rushing in once again to meet her in that place and he begins to speak over her again the things that he said over her in the past. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like the flock of ewes which have come up from their washing, all which bear twins and not one of them. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. These are things that he has said over her before. But it's in this moment of testing and difficulty where it becomes very clear to everyone that everything he has said about her up until this moment is true. Those things that he saw in her, that she didn't see in her, and that no one else saw in her, he, they're being made manifest right now in the midst of testing. They're being brought out in the midst of pain. And he speaks them over her again. And then he says this, verse 8. 
There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. She is his favorite one. The reality of her chosenness is made manifest in this moment of weakness, in this moment of difficulty, in this moment of pain. And he says, this is the one. This is her. There's, there's the rest of the earth means nothing in comparison to my beautiful bride who, who chooses me even in the midst of being tortured and torn apart, both emotionally and physically. When he says that, verse 9, at the end of verse 9, it says, The maiden saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. So who she is is being revealed to everyone around. Now this can be, this can be kind of, you know, uh, displayed in a couple ways. One, this is, I think this is a picture of the church when it goes through suffering. Where all of a sudden, you know, it's like uh, back in the in the Roman days when they would throw these Christians to the lions and these people would, the, the Christians would die worshiping with smiles on their faces. They're being ripped apart by wild animals and they're worshiping God. And everybody in the stadium is going, these people are insane. What on earth is, what? <laughs> explain this to us. And out of that moment, great revival was set loose because these people are dying full of joy in the midst of their death. And and the rest of the world says, whatever that is, I need it. Because I don't have joy in the midst of my really good life, but they have joy in the midst of their own death. That's why the Apostle Paul said, whether by my life or by my death, I will glorify him. He says, I, who I am, whether I'm suffering or whether I am in, in perfect, you know, nothing was going wrong. He is the center of my being. And it doesn't matter. That doesn't change. And they're seeing that about her. And they praised her. It's revealed all of a sudden, but this also can be true for the individual Christian and the church all around them, where you're going through a time of difficulty and the church looks at you and sees that smile still on your face. You're going through a time of suffering and they see that you don't become Eeyore, Okay, you know, that you, that joy erupts from inside of you, even though you're going through true deep difficulty where you do not understand what God is doing. You're walking and saying, he's, I love him. Even though the people you were supposed to trust the most have now hurt you. Christians who stay connected to the church over their life are going to be hurt by the church. It's just the truth. Because the church is made up of imperfect people. 
There are also, and also there are tares among the wheat. I mean, Jesus said it was true that there are people in every, in every place where the name of Jesus is being named, there are people in there who aren't, who don't belong to Jesus. Don't try and find them. Jesus said it won't be true. And you won't find out who they are until the day of judgment. But they are in there. It's not our job to figure it out. That was the whole point of that thing, of that uh, parable. Jesus was saying, just let them grow up together, and I will separate them at the end of time, you know, at, at the point of judgment. It's not your job to go find the tares. You're one of the tares. No, shut up. Let's stop that. That's not how it works, okay? You're not allowed to do that. It's your job to just grow alongside them. And it's my job to constantly be saying, look at your heart, push on your connection to Christ, make sure you're connected to him. Because there are people who um, at the end of time will think they were followers of Christ and aren't. Jesus made that clear. There are people that will come up to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Can and their resume is really good. We cast out demons, we prophesied, and we, you know, I, their resume is awesome. They got a better resume than most Christians. And they come before the Lord and he says, I don't know who you are. Because it's not your works. It's not what it's about. It's not about what you do for Jesus. It is about your connection to him through faith. That is what is it what it is about. And if you learn anything from this book, it's that. That it is all about let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That must be cultivated on the inside of you so that when difficulty comes, you can stand in the midst of the fire and say, I'm lovesick. Because difficulty is going to come, both from the world and and from the church. You're going to have times in your life that just plain suck. Know it right now. It's the truth. Question is, do you have fire in your heart? Then they say this over her. Who is this that grows like the dawn? Grows? It's not grows. Appears is a better translation, I think. Who is this that appears like the dawn? As beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners. This is what they are saying over her. Now, if you look earlier in this book, this is how she described him. As a desire for Jesus is cultivated on the inside of us, Jesus' glory begins to glow through us, and the world will see it. She looks like he did only a couple chapters before. Is that insane or what? There's a place in the book of Revelation where... Early on in the book, every time Jesus speaks or God the Father speaks, it says, and with a voice like many waters. And, and, and 
near the end of the book of Revelation, the body of Christ speaks and it says, and they spoke with the voice of many waters. They were speaking with the authority and the glory of Jesus on them. And that's where she is in this moment. She has walked through fire and now the glory of the Lord is upon her. And they are describing her just as she described him only a few chapters before. And it's because she's walked through difficulty and pain. They can see his glory on her. Verse 11. This is the bride. I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranates had bloomed. Now check this out. Okay, this is a total like flip, right? Wait, what's going on? Okay, she is now, she has confessed her passion for him. And now that life vision that she said earlier, let me run with you, is coming true. Because she's beginning to care about the things that he cares about. He invited her to go with him to see that the flowers were in bloom. He invited her to go with him to see that the vines were, were producing. And she said no early on, earlier on. And now she is going. She's walking with him. She said, let us run together. And that's what they're doing. She's reaching a place of maturity now where his passion has become her passion. The things that he cares about have become the things that she cares about. She's taken on his heart in such a measure, measure that he doesn't even have to call her to go there anymore. She goes there of her own volition. I love it. She goes where he wanted her to go all along without him even asking her. She's growing up. The day that my sons clean their room without me saying anything about it, I will know that they, are, they have grown up a little. You know what I mean? That may not be until they move out. I don't know. But it's just stuff like that that makes a parent go, oh, I'm not doing everything wrong. <laughs> when they begin to do things and say things that that's what I would have said in that moment, <laughs> whether he knows it or not. And he thought he thinks that this is his idea that's coming out of his mouth. But it's actually mine that I've been drilling into his head for the last you know, umpteen years. <laughs> But I would rather he thought it was his idea than him knowing it was mine. Does that make sense? If it arises from him without me having to prod it along, then I know that I have actually, he's internalized what I've been trying to teach him. And now it's there and I can trust it because he's saying it and I'm not saying it. Does this make sense? There is nothing more pleasant to a parent's heart than to hear their kids sound like them in a moment of decision and whatever. I mean, that is what parenthood is all about. Parenthood is about me teaching you to be your own parent. So I can stop. I'm always going to love you. I'm always going to be there for you. But I don't have to parent you anymore. That's what being a grown-up means, that they govern themselves. They make adult decisions without being scolded or fed the answer. And that's where she is. She's taken on his desires. Maturity is marked by a desire to see others mature. That's what she's doing. She's like, she's saying, boy, I want to go see the garden. When you're talking about the garden, that's talking about the church. 
She begins to have a passion for the church itself, that she wants to see the church come to maturity. She wants to see others around her carry the same cry that's begun to echo in her own heart. Verse 12, she says, Before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. She begins to see the need of the church, and all of a sudden she's compelled to do ministry. And she's like, how did I end up as the worship leader? I didn't even, I just tried out for the worship team. I don't understand what's going on here. How did I end up leading this? Those are the best kind of leaders, by the way. The ones who get leadership thrust upon them and they never sought it. Truly, those are the best leaders. Truly. It's the ones that everybody just kind of nominates them as the leader and they never wanted to be anyway. Because then you have a leader who's without ambition. That's one of the things I, lo I love about Pastor Don Gifford is he really didn't want the job of superintendent. <laughs> and he tells us that every, every time he talks, every, I didn't want this job. You made me take this job. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why he carries it with such humility because he didn't pursue it. He would have been happy just being a pastor all his life. He would have been totally happy with it. But then God called him to step up to be a pastor to pastors. And he still trembles before that position. Like I do not belong here, but I know it's my assignment. That's why I, in the Chronicles of Narnia, do you guys know the Chronicles of Narnia at all? And then, you know, um, at the end of Prince Caspian, Aslan asks Caspian if he's ready to be the king of Narnia. And Caspian says, no. <laughs> and Aslan says to him, good, because if you had thought you were ready, you wouldn't have been. They're great books, I'm telling you. You've got to read them again. Read them again as an adult. If you only read them as a kid, read them again. I, I try and read them once a year, honestly. And the truth is, they're such quick reads. I usually will read one book at a sitting. It takes me less than an hour to read Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. It's not long at all. And it reads really fast because it's written for kids. Anyway. But I cry through them. <laughs> I do. I weep through them because there's such glory in them. I mean, just the things that Aslan says, I was like, <laughs> when he says, uh, when he talks about, oh my gosh, the one that there's so many precious things that he says, but the, the one that, that is my absolute favorite is when is he says, if you had only known, you didn't, you knew the deep magic, but you didn't know the deeper magic that when one who has not, betrayed anyone, dies for someone else, that time itself goes in reverse, and even death itself goes backwards, which is why he rises, rises from the dead. And I'm just like, ah! I read that, I do, I just weep like a little kid, just, because <laughs> it's just like, it's the gospel, it's so good. We were talking about Les Miserables, who was I talking that? Too about that, I don't remember. But I was talking with somebody about it. Movies that made me cry. And I said, that one made me cry. And they were like, you're such a geek. I was like, no, Rachel cried when she watched Les Mis because of the love story. I cried when I watched Les Mis because you've got the gospel versus the law perfectly portrayed. And, and 
The law ends up killing itself because the gospel shows grace to the law and the law can't handle it. And I just cry through the whole thing. And I'm just, I, seriously, I, I, I watched that movie. I wept like a child. And Rachel's like, I told you this was good. And I was like, you don't even get it. So <laughs> I'm not crying because of the love story. I could care less. Uh, oh my gosh. It just undoes me every time. Every time. Because that's the real message of that of that story. Oh, gets me. The love story is awesome, but the real message is, is the gospel. It really is. Before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of the noble people, so she's had leadership thrust upon her in this moment. Out of nowhere, she got sucked into taking care of these people. <laughs> because they recognized her maturity, and they asked her to take care of them her love for them puts her in a place of ministry towards them guys listen to me if you enter into ministry out of some need of your own one that need is never going to be satisfied and two you're going to be a terrible leader a lot of people go into ministry out of some desire to be recognized or some need to fulfill their purpose. Okay? If, if that's where you begin, you're going to burn out. You're going to despise God's people sooner or later. And they're not going to be fed. Not really. So if that's why you're involved in ministry, out of some personal need to be someone else's savior do them a favor and stop go sell insurance okay my parents the whole time i grew up said to me over and over again if you can not be in the ministry then you should not be in the ministry and this is what they meant <laughs> please choose something else this is not a career path But when need drives you and when your passion for the things that Jesus is passionate about drives you so that you can't help yourself, even when you say, I'm taking a break from ministry, you're still doing ministry all the time. When that's who you are, then guess what? You're in the right place. You're in the right place. And there are so many people I've seen so many times over the years that just they'll step into a ministry, they'll find out it's it, that they're not being fulfilled, and they'll step out. Well, guess what? This isn't about you guys. Ministry is not about you. It's about Jesus, and it's about his people. And if you're stepping into ministry for you, you're doing it for the wrong reason. You're not going to be satisfied, and you're going to hurt people along the way. So just do us all a favor and don't do it. Honestly, that's one of the things that I think is really great about Master's Commission. Because if you start washing the, the feet of the people of Jesus right away, and they stink. And they're gross. And you get right, put right in your face exactly what ministry actually is. 
It's servanthood. It's not glory. It's not recognition. You get 99% of ministry is cleaning up other people's crap. 1% is being in front of a crowd or having people listen to you. That's the truth. So if that's what you're interested in is being in front of a crowd and having people listen to you, you know, go do music on a cruise ship or something. I mean, come on. Listen. There's a way to find an audience, okay? There's other ways to find an audience. That's not what ministry is about, ever. Please understand that. Now, she goes into ministry. This is really the first time she's been in ministry. And she says, and, and, and she only ended up there, be, she kind of ended up in ministry on accident, okay? And in verse 13, we have the two responses to the Shulamite's ministry. She's this passionate, fiery woman of God who is all about Jesus and all about meeting the needs of the people Jesus loves. And she steps up into ministry and here's the two responses. The first response, come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back that we may gaze on you. So there's a whole bunch of kind of Shulamite fanboys. They love her. They think she's awesome. They're like, oh, we love you. You're great. Woo! But then <laughs> we have the response, which is, why should you gaze at the Shulamite? Okay? So you have the two groups of people. And every minister in the history of the world has had both of these people in their congregation. People that love you and people that think you are nothing special. In fact, they might hate you. But most, most of the time, they're just going to go, well, he's not as good as he thinks he is. Okay? Those are the two responses to the Shulamite in ministry. To the Shulamite just wanting... She's just there because she wants to help people reach maturity. And their response or one response is like overwhelmingly positive, And the other response is overwhelmingly negative. And that's where, and that's where, that is the way every minister gets responded to. Just understand this. There are always, always, always going to be people that for whatever reason do not like you. They aren't going to like the way you preach. They aren't going to like the way that you sing. They aren't going to like the way that you minister to young people or old people or whatever. There's going to be something about you that they don't like. Okay. And most of the time, here's a hint. Most of the time, the things about you that they don't like has to do with the fact that they are provoked to jealousy by your passion for Jesus. It's not because you did anything wrong. Most of the time, they, you make them feel bad about themselves because you are the real thing. That's most of the time what's going on there. But just expect it. Expect there to always be people that don't like you. Be ready for it. It's going to happen. Every ministry, this is definitely true of me. Every ministry I've been involved in, there have been people that were like, you're doing a great job. Just keep it up. And then there have been people that tell everybody, except me. They don't ever say it directly to your face. <laughs> ever. That never, ever happens. I have never had someone come up to me and say, you're a terrible preacher. That has never happened to me. I would love that. I would look at that guy and say, thank you. <laughs> They'd be like, what? I said, thank you for being honest with me. 
for actually coming to me and talking to me about it. I, I have only had one time in my life, check this out, where somebody had a real problem with something that I was doing and they actually came to me and talked to me about it. But do you know when they came to me and talked to me about it? After they talked to someone else. And that person was righteous enough to say, you should probably talk to Josh about this. In fact, don't say anything else to me until you've talked to Josh about this. I rejoiced in that person's righteousness. I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with people where they come to me and they start complaining to me about something and I'll be like, eh, have you said this to them? No, then shut up. I'm not going to listen. I, I, I am, no, that, you're not going to badmouth them to me. That's not going to happen. Whether I like them or not, you're, you don't get to talk to me about Jesus' servant that way. I'm, I'm not going to, no, 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 no. According to the biblical pattern, if you have a problem with them, you have to go to them first. If they don't listen, then you can come to a trusted friend and involve a trusted friend or a church leader in the discussion. But not until you've already spoken to them about it. Okay, but most of the time, 99% of the time, you are only going to hear about it through somebody else. You know what really disgusts me about this is this is true about leaders. They will have a whole conversation with you about how terrible someone is. Someone that they are responsible for leading in, like this is the pastor over someone else and they're talking to you about the person that they're supposed to be leading and they still haven't talked to that person. I just want to look at those people, and I've actually done this before, and forgive me for this, but I look at them and say, you need to grow a pair of balls and talk to them. Sorry, guys. Ladies, you too. Grow up. Be a person of integrity and actually talk to them. Don't come, don't come talking to me. And I desperately try to practice what I preach. I really do. I'm not going to say I get it right every time because I, I'm, I'm sure that I don't. And I'm sure there are moments when I'm frustrated with somebody and it comes out on somebody that I trust and it shouldn't. And I would give any of you permission, if you hear me talking bad about somebody else, to tell me to shut up. I really try and practice what I preach in this. I know I'm not perfect, so I'm sure I messed up a few times, but I really try. I try and not talk about other people until I've spoken to them myself. I really do. So you're going to have both responses. One, the people that like you are going to come and they're going to tell you themselves, most of them, and they're going to tell you you're doing a good job, whatever, because they know it's good to encourage people. The people that don't like you, and look at this, they don't talk to the Shulamite. No, they talk to the people that like the Shulamite. They say, why should you gaze at the Shulamite? They don't say, hey, Shulamite, you're ugly. They don't do that. They say to the people that like the Shulamite, well, she's not so special. Just be ready for that, guys. That is how the body of Christ has worked forever. That's and and in the, it calls this the dance of the two companies. Is what is what it calls it, because that's what happens. Okay. 
Now, something you need to understand. The encouragers and the discouragers are both going to be used by God to teach you to love him more. That doesn't mean God has set your discouragers loose on you. (laughs) That's not what it is. But God will use the plan of the enemy, the plan the enemy set loose to to discourage you. If you are in the place where you you choose not to be offended and you choose to be lovesick, that discouragement will just push you deeper into him. And that's what it does for her too. Because in the midst of that place, starting with verse 1 of the next chapter, he comes back to her and he begins to pour out over her again all the things that he loves about her. And this is the longest, this is probably the longest uh, section of scripture of him describing her beauty. And the, the reason it's here Understand, this is Jesus' response to the discouragers. That's his response. It's also his response to the encouragers. He is coming to her and he is grounding her in the way he feels about her. He says, the encouragers are great, the discouragers are terrible, but neither one of them matter. What matters is how I feel about you. Put your feet down on the solid, unchanging ground of my passion for you. When you wake up every day and you can say, verse 10 of this chapter, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. When you can wake up every day and honestly say that from the core of who you are, it doesn't matter what some idiot says about you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what anybody has to say about you when you are living in the place of I am loved by him and I belong to him. When that's your ground floor, when that's your foundation, his passion for you is unshakable, unquenchable. It is un, it will not move. It will not change. It is forever and it is beyond anything you could ever imagine. And when you live in that place, that is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 prayed that we would be rooted and grounded in love. That this would be the place where our life flows from. What is the roots of a plant are where they get their sus- the, the life that comes up from the ground and fills it. He says, be rooted and grounded in love. This is what he's talking about. Let let his love for you and the revelation of his love for you be where you begin. Let it be your ground. Let it be the solid thing in your life. When everything else is shaken, when everything else moves, when everything else is difficult and hurts, his love for you will not change. And when he comes back to her in the first nine verses of this chapter, he is speaking, breathing fire over her heart again and saying, don't listen to those that are speaking well of you and don't listen to those that are, that are speaking ill of you. Listen to me. 
What man has to say is not important for the good or the bad. If you live your life based on the fear of man or chasing the approval of man, you are going to be left hurt, broken, and empty forever. Because that's all that ever happens. Man is fickle. One day they're going to love you and the next day they're going to hate you. Just know it. And set your feet on the solid rock of Jesus' love for you. I could go through this list, but I have to tell you, verses 1 through 9 are embarrassing. They, they're, they're like, wow, okay, yikes. There's some great stuff in there, but it's like, wow, all right. So we're just going to skip them. Her identity and her worth, but it's his outpouring of passion for all that she is, for everything about her. He's expressing exactly how he feels about her. Her identity and her worth comes from her relationship with him and his desire for her. He is moved by her choices, her thought life, her passion, and her sensitivity to him. Those are, that's, those are the things that he mentions in there. He mentions her choices. He mentions her thought life. He mentions her passion and her sensitivity to, to him. Those, that, those are the things that are listed there in poetic language. Verse 10. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. It is my prayer. It is my prayer that you are able to say this. Everything about me belongs to you, Jesus, and you desire me. That you would honestly be able to feel that. That you would live in that place where there is nothing in me that doesn't belong to him. And I know that he desires me. That you can live in that place knowing, feeling, understanding his desire for you, his passion for you, for your heart. I want this so much for you. This is what I pray over you. I pray this for you. I pray this for my church in Fremont. I pray that for First Assembly of God. I pray that, that we as Christians would live in this place. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. For me. It's the truth that you would be able to wake up and honestly say, I'm his favorite one. Can you say that without being embarrassed? I'm his favorite one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it feels a little weird, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> right? Because it's hard to say without being embarrassed. Like, geez, I don't want to say that. You know, he loves everybody. No, uh-uh. I'm his favorite one. I'm his favorite one. <laughs> Me. <laughs> All right, come on, everybody. Let's do it. Ready? One. We're going to do this together. You don't have to beat your chest. But... <laughs> I want you to say it. We're going to say, I'm his favorite one. We're going to do this together. Okay. Are you ready? Are you ready? One, two, three. I'm his favorite one. Woo! 
And if that felt weird, or if you just disobeyed and didn't do it at all, I'm praying that God goes right around all your insecurity and tells you the truth, that what we just spoke is true. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, just, it's the truth. Uh, oh, I just said there's something that just wells up inside of me. I'm just like, ah, oh. I, I get, I get, there is, I, I am so like, you don't understand. When I think about you, when I think about you coming to really honestly believe this, it will unlock you in ways that you have never, ever, ever understood. What do you have to be afraid of? When you're his favorite one. What do you have to fear when you're his favorite one? What, what, what will you not try when he tells you to try something? When he says, go do this for me. When you're honestly his favorite one, what will you, what will you shrink back from? Nothing. You live in this place. We're just saying, I'm his favorite one. I don't care what he asked me to do. I'll pick up garbage for Jesus for the rest of my life. When you, I'm serious. And you'll be so happy. One of my favorite songs from the House of Prayer. It's, uh, uh, it's called uh, All is for Your Glory. And, and, and there's this part, this bridge in the end where it just says, put me anywhere. Just put your glory in me. Uh, put <laughs> I'll serve anywhere, but let me see your, let me see your beauty. Just, it's that place that I don't care. I just want to be with you. I, you can, you, I can be on the stage in front of a million people, or I can be, I can be cleaning toilets in a church of, of five people. I don't care, Jesus, but, but I want you. I know the truth that I am his favorite one. So whether the, the ministry that you give me explodes and changes the universe or like nobody ever gets saved, it's not important to me. None of that stuff is important to me as long as I am allowed to live in this place to know the truth that, you're, that I, I'm your favorite one, that your desire is for me. Then I don't care what you do with me, Jesus. Nothing else is important to me. I don't have to make good money. I don't have to. It doesn't matter. The Apostle Paul said, I have learned to be content whether I'm in want or whether I'm, he said, he doesn't care. He said, I consider everything else I've ever done before this, all of my degrees, all of my accomplishments, all of it, I consider it rubbish. And the word he uses, rubbish, is a curse word. It's the truth, by the way. Did you know that? It's the Greek version of the bad word for poop. Okay? I'm serious. Because he doesn't, and he was trying to make a point. He's like, listen, what, what, it is absolute crap. Everything I've ever done for Jesus is crap. Worthless, ridiculous, nothing. I just want to know him. He was living in that spot. I'm his favorite one. That's where he was living. When the apostle Paul, the greatest, uh, the greatest of the apostles is able to say, I'm the least of all Christians and not be unhappy about it at all. Like just, that's just, that's me. I'm good. I don't care. I don't, oh, you're gonna, there's going to be a shipwreck? All right, I'm fine. I don't know. I don't know if I want to die and, and be with Jesus or if I want to stick around. I don't know, whatever. Just as long as Jesus is glorified, I'm happy. I don't care because I'm his favorite one and nothing else matters. I want this for you. I'm so desirous of this for you. I, 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 I beg the Lord to help you to understand that you, because this is true whether you know it or not, I just want you to know it. 
I want you to know it. I want you to be able to say, honestly, in the, in, in the depths of who you are, I want you to be able to say, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. That is what maturity looks like. Verse 11, come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance and over our doors and all our choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. She's doing life with him. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what she does, where she goes, what her assignment is in the moment. The point is, when, as we're there, I can give you my love. It doesn't matter. We can go to the villages and stay in a hut. doesn't matter. I get to give you my love. We can go, we can go uh, minister in the largest church in the, in the world and, and have our name known all over, all over the country. It doesn't matter as long as I can give you my love. This is all I'm interested in is our connection to each other. This is all I really want. I want to be about your business. I want to do what you want me to do. I belong to you. Your desire is for me. This is where we live. And this is all that's important. And that's what she's saying. There I will give you my love. No matter where. It doesn't matter where we go. Her life vision that she, cri that she cried out to God for early on. It has been a rocky road to get here. But her life vision is coming true. Let us run together. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Let us run. That's what she's learning to do. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. I found you outdoors. I would kiss you and no one would despise me either. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I would give you spice wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. Let his left hand be under my head and right hand embrace me. I want to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. So this is... Understand, remember what I, when we talked about the honeymoon and how they spend the night in the mother's house? Okay, she, she asks for two things here. She asks, number one, when she says, let me, let, I wish that you were like a brother to me. Please don't get grossed out by that. Because what she's saying is she wants to be able to show affection to him in public and have no one be offended. She's asking that the passion that she has for him might be able to be displayed without, right, without offense rising up. That's what she's asking for. And then she says, and I will take you back to my mother's house. Now that was their honeymoon. She's asking to stay connected with her first love. This is her prayer. I want my passion for you to be on display to the world without causing offense. I don't, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I, I want to do this, but I, I don't want to be showing off. I want people to know what you mean to me, but I don't want to, I'm not interested in my own glory at all. Does that make sense? You know, there's times when you, when, when you want to be like, Okay, like Jesus talks about, about fasting and how you shouldn't tell anyone that you're fasting, right? And then later on, 
if God gives you some like deep revelation out of that place of fasting and you're like, well, I was fasting and then, and you almost feel bad about saying anything about it. Does that make sense? And, 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 and you, you want to share that revelation, but it's, but, but you don't want anybody to think that you think, uh, you know, too highly of yourself. And that's where she's at. She's like, look, I'm so grateful for what you've done for me and how far you've brought me. I want everyone to see how far you've brought me, but I don't want to be caught to cause offense. I don't, I don't want anyone else to see me and think that I think so much of myself. This is about what you've done for me, not about what I've done because I screwed up over and over again. It was in my places of greatest screw ups that you met me. Sometimes when, I, when I'm teaching or preaching, whatever, and I share some story from my own personal journey with Jesus, I feel that way. I feel like maybe I shouldn't have said anything because I don't, I'm not interested in anybody thinking, boy, he loves Jesus or exalting me in any way, shape or form. I would rather do like Paul said and boast in my weakness. I'd rather do that. I'd, ra I'd rather talk to you about how screwed up I am and, and, and how I make the wrong mistake. I make mistakes all the time. And how I would rather you knew more, you knew that about me. Because that's true. And whatever Jesus has given me, he has only, it's been his grace. I haven't done anything to earn it. And I don't deserve it at all. And I'm, a, I'm just standing here going, I'm a lucky man. I don't believe in luck, but you know what I mean. God has been unbelievably good to me. Astoundingly good to me. And all I've ever done, all I've ever done is say yes to it. That's all I've ever done. That's the only reason I have anything is because he offered me a gift and I said, okay. That's it. That's it. And that's where she is. So her first prayer is that. Her second prayer is keep me keep me close to my first love. Don't let me lose this. Can I say this to you? Unless you are scared to death that well, I, I don't want to say it that way. You better be humble before the possibility of sin. You just better be aware that with, uh, unless you are pressing into the help of Jesus at all times, you're going to ruin your life. You need to know that. You need to live there. You need, you need to, I remember a few years ago, we had an elder in our church that they found child pornography on his computer. And I love this man. Still, to this day, I love him. He's actually doing okay now, but I couldn't believe it. This is a man whose prayer life and whose life in Christ I had looked up to my entire life. And he's caught up in something like that. And he's going to spend the rest of his life as a registered sex offender. And I turned to my wife and I said, you've got to watch my life. You've got to check my internet history. You've got to read my email. You've got to read my text messages. You've got to be nosy. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to. 
And I say that to people that I'm in accountability relationships with. Please ask me the hard questions. Please tell me if you see anything, even a hint of a place where I'm hiding something from you. I, I can, I just, I know if there's any moment, if there's any, if there's any moment in my life where I stop leaning into the grace of God, I will ruin my whole life and a whole bunch of other people's lives with me. And that is twice as important now that I'm leading a church than it has ever been. I have got to stay transparent. As the, the Indiana district calls it, no part dark. It means absolute accountability in every level of your life. Are you reading the Bible? What is your family life like? Are you uh, abstaining from things that, would, that, that are sinful? You need to be an open book. Every pastor, especially pastors and people in ministry, have got to be an open book. There have to be people in your life that are going to look you in the eye and say, are you staying pure? And for a long time, this has been an absolute priority for me that I have at least two or three men in my life that are, that are allowed to ask me any, any question. And I promise them that I will answer honestly. And I do. My wife has access to every form of communication that I'm involved with. She has access to... Um, my, all my, you know, internet histories, everything else, and she looks at them. I know she does, because she'll talk to me about them later, which means it's really hard to surprise her in any way, shape, or form. Like, you know, we did her birthday party. She turned a significant age a couple years ago, and we did a birthday party for her that was a surprise. And it was really hard to get around all the stuff that she can see and looks at all the time. I had to, like, get a new app or something. That I don't even remember exactly how I did it, but I, it was really hard. And I had to really kind of farm a lot of the planning off on, on, on her friends and say, she sees everything I do, so I can't do it. That's where I want to live. I am okay with that. Guys, this whole idea of that's my private stuff, put that away. You don't need you don't need that kind of privacy. You just don't, and it's dangerous. Anything that's not visible to people you trust. I'm not saying you, you know, I'm gonna post my internet history on Facebook. No. Okay. A whole nother thing there. Some people just overshare. Okay, then let's not do that, all right? But if there are, but people you trust, you need to be open with them. And if you're struggling, please, if you're struggling with anything, talk to someone about it. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to go to one of my accountability partners and be like, okay, I screwed up about any number of things and just say, I need, I need you to pray for me about this and I, and I need you to hold me accountable on this issue for the next however long until this battle is over because I'm, I'm losing the battle on this. It really helps. Where were we? Oh, yeah. Okay. And she's asking to stay connected to her first love. 
we honestly think that we cannot fall, then we are going to fall. It's the minute you think that you're standing that you crumble. Be needy when it comes to the Lord. Beg him for grace. And whenever I sense any kind of confidence in my own ability, I have endless confidence in his ability. (laughs) I have endless confidence in his love for me. I have endless confidence in what he can do. But the minute I sense any confidence in myself, I'm I as soon as as soon as that little thing pops its head up, I'm like, ah, Lord, help, help. I have self-confidence. Please help. Self-confidence, this whole self-esteem thing is crap. It's a it's from the enemy. It is, it's totally from the enemy. Because you're not self, you don't, you can't. You suck. You're broken. You're messed up. Your only confidence should be fully 100% all the time resting on the only one who never fails. And that ain't you. Isn't this isn't this an encouraging sermon? <laughs> you suck, right? Okay. It's, we're having a new sermon series. It's called All the Ways That You Suck. <laughs> And he's like, God, you do not suck. Yes. <laughs> that was Dave Chum Chong. Awesome. Just awesome former I, former pothead that's that that loves Jesus. <laughs> he really was. And he would he would talk about like he would talk about how Jesus delivered him from weed and, and all this stuff and and, uh, and and but he still sounds like a pothead. He's still he's still he, he's still like he's still like wow man. God, you do not suck at all. Yeah, I've quoted that several times since he showed us. I think that's a beautiful, I just loved his honesty in that moment. Because he was just enjoying God. He's like, oh, you do not suck at all. I just love it. And then he said, let's just, let's just sing this. Life is so crappy without you. That's what he said. Let's just sing how God doesn't suck. That's what he said. And I'm just sitting there like, oh my gosh. He's the same guy that played this whole intro on the guitar. It was was an offertory. And he's all like, played this gorgeous guitar intro. And at the end, he breaks a string. And in the microphone, he goes, aww. What? Uh, this, this no, the first one was at this this uh, this like young adult gathering that used to happen every like once a month. It was called Peace House, and and he would and he led that the young yeah. adult gathering. So that was at the young adult thing. But the other one was yes, it was at this church, and he was a, he was a guest worship leader that day. <laughs> And he did, and then he's like, oh, and just went on and sang the song. <laughs> I love him so much. I miss him. He, they moved to Ohio quite a few years ago. and I don't know what's going on with him now, but don't ever, self-confidence is dangerous, but confidence in the Lord is totally, you, you need it. You desperately need it. I had, a, I had an accountability partner once say to me, I just don't have any self-esteem. And I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> and he looked at me like, what? And I said, I don't think self-esteem is a Bible thing. 
I just don't. But being confident in how he feels about me, I don't is that the same thing? I mean that's not self-esteem. I, I, I don't think it is. Self-esteem is saying, I'm worth it. I'm 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 good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. Right? <laughs> you guys don't you guys don't know that, do you? It's Stuart Small. He was on the this is this guy he would talk to himself in the mirror. And and he was he was kind of like this, and he was like and he would end it with, because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. Oh my God. It was called Self-Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. It was really funny. Okay. What? I love the Truman Show. My son Aiden will uh, just randomly say, uh, you know, and if I don't see ya, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Oh my gosh. He did that when I dropped him off at school the other day. He said, see you, Dad. Oh, and if I don't see ya, it was like, just get in there. No. It's in between laughter and really trying hard not to curse at my children. That's 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 where my life is. It's a, it's a constant move back and forth between oh my gosh, you kids are amazing, and oh my gosh, I hate you. Why did I ever have children? I don't really hate them. I mean, I love them, but in that moment, it's like. And Rachel and I, every once in a while, we'll look at each other and go, "Why did we have kids again?" <laughs> she, she usually says, do I need to remind you? Okay. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 8. We're on the last chapter, guys. We're, we're almost there. Yeah! Woo! Who is this? Coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved... Beneath the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she was in labor and gave you birth. Okay, we're going back again to the mother's house. I don't know why that's such a sexy thing for them, but it was. So, because it, it's the honeymoon, right? I mean, it's it's the, you know, whatever. It's the, remember when we went to the the Virgin Islands or whatever? My, my, yeah, exactly. I don't know what that's about. I know. Sorry. It's all right. No, it's true though. It's exactly what he's saying. Do you remember when I went to the room where your mother gave birth to you? It's just weird. But they're like, woohoo, yeah. Whatever. It's the honeymoon. It was like that was that was the hot. That was the hot place. That's true. Yep. That's true. Uh, yeah. Yes, the proposal. That was such a great one. I love that movie. That's a great. That's one of that's one of my that's one of my wife's favorite movies. Okay. You can just stop now. Yeah, we're just gonna go back to Song of Solomon. Not really turning All right, verse five. Verse five of chapter eight. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? I already read it to you, but here's the deal. She's coming out of the wilderness. Check this out. They see her coming out of the wilderness. Remember, that's what she's done. Leaning on her beloved, she has learned to trust his strength. 
That's the whole idea. She's leaning on her beloved. Beneath the apple tree I awakened you. He says, there your mother was in labor, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so she, he's saying yes to, her, to, to the prayers that she's just prayed. He's saying yes to her. He's saying, I will keep you connected to your first love. That's what I will do. I will do that. And I, I, love, that, I love that the Lord makes this promise. But then he makes a request of her. Check this out. This verse is, if we end with this verse and never move on, I'm okay with it. Because this verse, verse 6, is, it is the cry of Jesus to his beloved. Okay, hear this. It is, it is Jesus asking us for something. He says, put me like a seal over your heart. Like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy as severe as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. He's saying, let my love mark you. She said earlier, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And he, now he is the one making the same cry. Let me kiss you with the kisses of my mouth. Set me as a seal, a burning, fiery seal over your heart and over your arm. He says, you've come a long way and you have changed dramatically, but it is not enough. Let, he asks, he says, ask me for the seal of divine love, that she would love him with divine Holy Spirit enablement. He wants us to learn how to lean on his strength, even to love him more. You hear this? It's one thing, the natural response of our heart to his love is love back. But now Jesus is saying this, ask me to give you the power to love me more. Ask me to enable you by the power of my Holy Spirit to love me more. And this, is this not exactly what Apostle Paul prayed for? That you might be strengthened in your inner man, that you might be rooted and grounded in love, strengthened by his spirit in the inner man. That is Ephesians 3.15. That you would pray that God would strengthen you by his spirit in your inner man, that you might love him more, that you might know the height and the width, the width and the depth of his love, and you might be filled to all the fullness of God. We, are, we have reached the edge of the, our potential to love him. And now we're saying, Give me the ability to love him more than I ever have before. Holy Spirit, come. Let my heart burn beyond what I am capable of doing on my own. Give me more capacity to love you. And he says it's a twofold love. Okay, what, what is the first and greatest commandment before we get there? The first and greatest commandment is what? Exactly. Now understand, God, hear me on this. Obedience in the Christian life does not come through exertion of our own will. Our ability to obey God is not enough. Jesus demonstrated it over and over again. You can't do it. Your righteousness has to exceed that 
of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said. It has to go beyond human effort. You have to be given divine ability to obey. And that includes, and it is most important when it comes to the first commandment. We need to be on our knees saying, help me love you more. Teach me, enable me, put Holy Spirit fire in me to have more passion for you than I am personally capable of. Give me the ability to love you more. Let it be the most passionate prayer you ever pray. I want to live out the first commandment, not in my own strength, but by the power of Holy Spirit, grace and divine enablement flowing through me, that every part of me is set in alignment with first commandment, first place, that everything I am says, I love the Lord. And this is one of the primary things that I pray, especially over my children. Father, I ask you to let them love you beyond human capacity for love. I've been praying this for them since before they were born. And I pray it for them, well, not every day, but often. That they would love him more than they believe is possible, than is possible for any human to love them, to love him. That's my prayer, and that's Jesus' prayer for you. You want to know what Jesus is praying for you before the Father night and day? This is what he's praying for you. Let the seal, the fiery seal of love be placed upon their hearts. Give them the ability to love me. It's out of this place that the obedience to all the rest of the commandments will flow, including the second of the greatest commandments, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Until you have true, complete, fiery love for Jesus, loving your neighbor is going to be really hard. It's still going to be hard. But as you lean into the grace of God, love for them will flow out of the overflow of your love for him. We saw it happen with her earlier. He, she encountered his love and immediately she goes to look to see who she can help. Why? Because out of her love for him overflows love for others. That's how we know that, our, that the love is real. That's how we know we really love Jesus is if we love each other. In 1 John, 1 John, he's kind of a jerk in that book. I mean, there's some really hardcore stuff, but he says point blank, if you hate your brother and say you love God, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. Why? Because love for others is the evidence of true love for God. You stoke up the fire of your love for God and you will begin to love other people in spite of yourself. That's why I just tend the flame of my love for God all the time. I'm constantly before the Lord. I'm just seriously saying, oh, help me love you more. Misty Edwards wrote like all of her songs out of this couple, you know, passages. It's not really true, but. In, in the song, she says, I'll set you as a seal upon my heart, as a seal upon my arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy demanding is the grave. That's, she's just quoting this verse. In response to the call of her beloved saying, set me as a seal. She says, I will. That's 
Now this seal is twofold. Number one, it's a seal on your heart. In other words, it's a seal over your inner life. Let all of your inner life, let everything that's going on inside of you, all of your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, let them find their genesis in love for him and let them be informed and shaped and molded by a passion for Jesus Christ. Everything that goes on in the inside of you should flow from the place of I love you. I am my beloved's. From let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Let that be the beginning of every other cry inside of you. And the truth is, it is whether you know it or not. Because the one thing you're truly desperate for, more than air, more than water, more than any other thing, is you as a human being are desperate for the presence of God. We've just buried it under all the other passions. Because that cry is the loudest in us, but we don't want to hear it. La, 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 la. We don't want to hear it. Because it costs us everything, but it's worth it. Send me as a seal on your heart. Let my inner life be ruled <coughs> by love for you. My passion, my emotions, my thought life, everything on the inside of me. Let this be your primary prayer. Set your, set you, Lord Jesus, be the seal on my inner life. Be the thing that contains my, the whole of my inner life contained in this reality, this fiery seal from you that I adore you and that I am being enabled by the Holy Spirit to love you more than I ever could on my own. But then he also says, like a seal on your arm, He wants to be all that your inner life is about, but he also wants to be all that your outer life is about, the things that you do. They should be touched by, marked by, shaped by your love for him. Let it all smell like your love for him. It should begin in your love for him. Let everything that you do in ministry begin with, I love Jesus. Even before it's, I love people. Because if you minister to humans for humans' sake and not for the sake of Christ, you will ruin them. You will turn themselves and point themselves at themselves and not at Jesus. When your ministry to other people is about your love for Jesus, you will turn them to Jesus. When your ministry for other people is about your love for those people, you turn them to themselves. Does that make sense? You teach them that their worth is why I'm ministering to them. This is one of the primary issues I have with the Assemblies of God, and I, I, I fully support the practices of the Assemblies of God. Okay, <clears throat> and I truly do. Our, my dad makes us do that in staff meeting. Whenever, whenever we say anything that's like, like any... <clears throat> <laughs> he says, put up your hand. Put up your right hand. I fully support the Indiana district. And he's like, okay. And I do. I love, but this is my one issue. Is we, we take the worth of man and we raise it up. We lift it up and we say, the lost, they are lost. So we need to go out and we don't say, we don't say, Jesus loves them. So we should go after them. It's not about Jesus. It's about them. 
And I have a huge problem with that. Because then, <coughs> if that's my goal, if that's where my, my ministry to them begins, then what am I trying to give them? I'm trying to give them themselves. Right? Because that's what I care about is them. And I, I, want, I want to restore them to what? To themselves. That is not what I want. I want to give them to Jesus. So when my ministry begins with Jesus wants them, Jesus loves them, Jesus died for them, when my, when my ministry begins there, when my ministry begins, that group, that nation is not yet worshiping him and he deserves to be worshiped. So go preach the gospel to that nation. When that's where I begin, then everything gets falls into place. When the worth of God is greater than the worth of man in my own heart and my own mind. When the first commandment is in first place and the second is in second, then I'm really ministering to people. When I first became a youth pastor, I had to take this drive down to Texas and back because I was starting uh, classes at SAGU online. And for some reason, they make you come to the campus for the first weekend of, of classes and you get all your classes set up there on campus. I'm like, what? I'm going to do all of my work online. But I have to drive 15 hours to Texas or get on a plane. This is stupid. But anyway, that's what they made me do. So I drove down to Texas and back by myself, which means I had 30 hours in the car. And I said, well, this is perfect because I'm about to start this job. So I'm just going to spend the whole time there and back talking to Jesus. And it was awesome. It was awesome. It was one of the most powerful prayer times of my life. I'm amazed that I didn't crash the car. I mean, truly. Because I was weeping most of it, you know, <laughs> and I was emotional, and I was, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I'd, it was worse than what we were doing on the way back from the wedding. It, it was, it was, I was, I was so caught up, and and that was that was you know thirty hours of that. It was awesome, unbelievable, and God gave me so much stuff during that time. I was really grateful for Sagu asking me to come down there because it was such a precious time to me. But I was about halfway back. And I said to the Lord, Lord, I need a vision that will actually drive me. I'd been doing some research. I found out that there were like 40,000 teenagers in the greater Fort Wayne area that did not have a connection to Jesus. And, 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 but that kept me praying for only about an hour and a half. Because my love for those teenagers ran out after that. You might be going, well, uh, well, you're a good youth pastor. <laughs> no, really. Like, I, I, I didn't have any more passion. You know what I mean? I was going passionately for an hour. And I said, Lord, I, I've got to have I've got to have more than this. Me caring about them is not enough to help to for me to spend my life wading through their crap. I mean, it's just not. It's not enough. I love them, but I don't love them that much to take me away from my wife and my kids, to spend, you know, I, I, I love them, but that's, this is not enough. And I just knew it in my heart that this was not enough. I said, Lord, I need something that's going to propel me even when I hate every teenager in Fort Wayne. And I knew there were going to be days when I would, okay? I just knew it. That I was going to, there were going to be days, and there were, trust me. There were days when I was like, if I see another teenager, I might kill him. <laughs> And the Lord said, the Lord gave me this picture of a generation on their faces before the Savior. 
he said, don't do it for them, do it for me. And I said to him, I'll never forget it. I said to him, I can do that. When this is about you, Jesus, I'm in. I can do it, and that, that won't go away. That, this will keep me strong. And there were definitely moments when I had to go before the Lord and say, show me that picture again. I can't do this anymore. Remind me that this is about you and not about these idiot kids that don't listen to me. <laughs> the worst moment in any youth pastor's life is to hear a camp speaker speak a sermon that you just you preached a couple always... weeks ago. You don't understand how, how horrible this was. <laughs> and this happened every year. I would, I would preach it and preach it better. Thank you very much. And this is, and I would have kids come up to me at camp and be like, oh, Jesus just spoke to me about that. Oh, I've never heard that before. And I would just like smack them. <laughs> you don't remember that whole sermon series we did for like six weeks where we talked about this? No, I don't really remember that. Of course you don't. Aww, Jack, I'm so sad. Some kids are <laughs> Familiarity breeds contempt. This is just how it is. When you do life with somebody, there comes a moment where they can't hear your voice anymore. And that's just true. It's true. <laughs> it has to be about him. It all has to be about him. Every single thing. It's got to be about him first. Do not minister to people because they deserve ministry. No, that's stupid. They don't. They have screwed up. They have put their middle finger up at God. They have, they have said no to him a thousand times. They don't deserve anything. They deserve nothing. And that's the truth. I deserve nothing. You deserve nothing. You deserve hell. That's what you deserve. And if I was trying to serve justice, I would just kill you and send you to hell. Because that's what you deserve. Is it not? Yes. That is exactly what you deserve. But guess what? Jesus thinks different. I might argue with him about some of you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Jesus said, for my glory, I will save them. He made your cause about him, and all of a sudden that changes everything. Now you deserve my whole life and more. Why? Because it's about him. He deserves my whole life and more, and he has now included you into him. So guess what? I have to pour out my whole life for you and do it joyfully. Because he deserves it. Not because you do. You don't. And I don't either. Let the seal of fiery love be on your arm. Let the smell of your, of your passion for him, let that be saturated. Everything that you do, when people see you worship, when people see you preach a sermon, when people see you do any other kind of ministry whatsoever, let them know first and foremost, the first thing that they should say is, boy, he loves Jesus. That's the very first thing they should say. And second, they should say they love me. It's a fire that goes beyond. 
reason she says it's demanding as the grave, or actually he says it's demanding as the grave, is because guess what? The grave gets everything. It's like it's like a black hole. Nothing escapes the grave, right? Well, Jesus wants his his fiery seal of love to be the thing, the black hole of your existence. Nothing escapes the pull of the fiery seal of love that is on you, on the inside and on the outside. Every part of your life is drawn in to that place. That there is nothing, nothing, the way you do your marriage, the way you parent, the way that you handle your finances, the way that you live your personal life, the way that you do every single thing is shaped by, begins in, and is formed by, and continues in, as and is empowered by your passion for Jesus Christ. Period. This is the one thing you do. You are passionate about him. And out of that place, everything flows. It's the only way to live satisfied, and that's the truth. Verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. When the fiery seal of love has been placed on you, then your love, doesn't matter how difficult life gets, your love will not go out. Your love will not go out. When he's the one enabling you to love, that love will stay. And that love is worth more than anything else. I kind of want to... I keep coming back to... Has anybody seen Moulin Rouge? I keep coming... There's this phrase in that movie that I keep running into over and over again in a very spiritual context is the point of the film. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. That's real. That's, that's the truth. That's the message of the cross. I love that movie anyway, just because you and McGregor can really sing. Obi-Wan can really sing. Isn't that weird? All right. Now the last part of this, it makes this weird turn. And when you're reading it, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Then all of a sudden you get to verse 8 and you're like, what? We have a little sister and she has no breasts. What should we do for our sister on the day when she's spoken for? What? What What just happened? What? This is, it has now turned, okay? This has turned, and this has to do with, now she's turning, and she's speaking to those who are about to go on the journey that she's just come through. She says, I want to guide you on this journey. You're about to go on a journey, and I want to guide you on it. Okay? She says, says, if she's a wall, we'll build a battlement of silver. If she's a door, we'll barricade her. She's saying, I want to keep you safe while you go on this journey. Pay attention to the journey that I've just been on and know that he is worth it. And I'll do better than the watchman who beat me, I promise you. It's really kind of beautiful. She turns around and says, look, this is what we're going to do. She says, that was me. And now I become, verse 10, she says, that was me. I was a wall. That was me. 
Then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. I have come through the fire, and now I know his love for me. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not finished at all. But I've walked the journey that you, that you are about to walk, and 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 I want to help you. That's all she's saying. And she says, you know, Solomon had a vineyard that he entrusted to caretakers, and each one was to bring all this money back to Solomon because they took care of the vineyard. And she says, you're my vineyard and you're at my disposal and everything that comes of the journey that you're about to go through, I'm going to give to Jesus. I get no glory for what's about to take place. I give no glory for the assistance that I give to you. This is for him. This is for him. My shekels are for Solomon, she says. This is, this is, all, this is for him. <laughs> then Jesus says, Oh, you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. He's encouraging her in this mission. He says, listen, the ones that are coming, they need to hear your story. Absolutely, he says, let me hear it. Because he loves to hear the story. Tell me again our love story. Remind me. And she says, hurry, my beloved. And be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. She's, she says, they don't need me, they need you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this book, and I thank you for the call that you put in front of us. Lord, I pray of every person in this room right now. be set as a seal upon our hearts. The fiery seal of love be set on our hearts. Let everything that goes on on the inside of us be ruled by, flow from, shaped by, touched by the fire of your love. Give us the ability to love you far more than we can love you in our own, in our, in, in our, in ourselves. Jesus, come and set a fire inside of us that we can't control, that that, that, that overwhelms us, that, that that takes us through a fire that won't go out. Though mighty rivers are poured upon it, it will still burn. Though many waters come to quench it, it'll stay blazing because it's not our love. It's your love burning inside of us. Set our cold hearts in the bonfire of your love and let us love you. Set it over our inner life and set it over our outer life. Set it over every thought, feeling, and emotion and set it over every deed, every action, every word. Let your love be what defines every person in this room. Let our love for you define us. And Lord, I pray that everyone in this place would be able to wake up every day from this day forward and say with all of their hearts, I'm his favorite one. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Jesus, I pray like the Shulamite, hurry, my beloved. Hurry to them. Take them on the journey. You know how to lead us into love. Take them on the journey, I pray. Pray that they would go from the place of insecurity. They would go from the place of brokenness. And the desire would lead them to the place where they can say, I am my beloved. And his desire is for me. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen.